0: Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Michelle Maidenberg, a psychotherapist in private practice in Harrison, New York. She is an adjunct faculty member at New York University teaching a graduate course in mindfulness practice. She is the co-founder and clinical director of Through My Eyes, a nonprofit organization that offers free, clinically guided videotaping to chronically medically ill individuals who want to leave a video legacy to their children and loved ones. Dr. Maidenberg is the author of the book, Free Your Child from Overeating, 53 Mind-Body Strategies for Lifelong Health, and her new book, Ace Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self and Live the Life You Want. She writes the Psychology Today blog, Being Your Best Self, and is a contributing editor to the journal group. She is dedicated and invested in health and mental health advocacy. Michelle, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Yeah, me too. And we originally connected several months ago. I remember I had read some of your writings about about core values and about growth mindset. I was really interested in that. And then you told me you had this really exciting news that a new book was coming out, and that's Ace Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self, and Live the Life You Want. And so we said, let's hold off and wait until that's out, and then we can talk all about that, which incorporates some of those original things that I had pinged you about. And so we're here today, and it's great to finally meet you in person.
1: Great to meet you, too.
0: So let's start by, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit. So I understand you are the anxiety lady, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about you as a person, how you got that name, or you self named that, and a little bit about you as a psychologist. Let's start there.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, people always ask me, did you know what you wanted to do from when you were very young? And I, I think I naturally just fell into this role just because of my family of origin and the way I grew up. And who I am as a person and just the way I'm wired. You know, I, I grew up, my parents were divorced when I was uh, three years old. So things started out challenging from the start. Um, my parents were very young when they got married. My mother was 18 and my father was 19 and oh. had, had me a year later. And all four of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of intergenerational trauma throughout my family. And it showed up throughout the generations. So I do want mm-hmm. to say that. And because of all the, I would say, you know, there was a lot of chaos growing up uh, between my parents and, you know, I I wrote some of it actually in the introduction of my book and I was trying very hard, you know, to, you know, to weigh how much to actually disclose because of obviously my practice and who I am, but made a conscious effort because I, I really think it's important for people to know where I come from. And also, I think one of the things that my, that my patients always tell me is that they really sense my genuineness. That's a comment that I always get. And it's because I really get them, you know, because I know so much about anxiety and and all the obviously challenges that they're working through. And also I have a lot of knowledge in advanced treatments to how to treat those, you know, various challenges, but it's really more about really getting them on a gut level, what it is to experience pain, what it is to experience you know, anxiety at times, right? Because my life was so chaotic that I was constantly, constantly in the flight or fight response. And my nervous system was constantly activated and my cortisol levels, I can't even imagine (laughs) where they were at. So I really relate to people and their pain. And I think that that comes through when I treat people. And I appreciate that. You know, when I hear that, it's like the best gift that somebody could tell me is that I really get them, you know, on a deep level.
0: Yeah. Did you hear a lot about the Holocaust when you were growing up?
1: It's interesting because all of my grandparents coped differently. And you could see their response to it by what and if they communicated about Uh it. So I had, you know, one set of grandparents, which was my maternal, you know, grandparents. And my grandmother on my mother's side was very verbal. She talked about it incessantly. She told very detailed stories of what had happened to her. And she was in a concentration camp. She had a very, very, you can imagine, traumatic stories. Yeah. But she made it a point. She really wanted us and all my cousins to know about the war and about these stories. My grandfather, her husband, never spoke a word about it. And if she spoke about it, she could never speak about it in front of him. You know, his entire family was murdered. Uh, He was the only one left. And again, very traumatic. He was actually wounded. He was working and making missiles and was hit over the head and had a big scar on on his head. You know, he told me a story because I I have um, a nonprofit which is called Through My Eyes. What I do is we offer free clinically guided videotaping for chronically medically ill individuals who want to leave a video legacy for their children and loved ones. Yeah. And I used actually my... Nonprofit to videotape my grandparents, um, which was incredible. was such an incredible experience. And my grandfather, you know, he had kind of a touch of Parkinson's and dementia when I videotaped him. But for some reason, that day he was completely lucid. It was like hmm. a miracle. And he told stories to me about the war that I have never ever heard before, and none of my family heard before. But one of the things he said, which stuck with me, and going back to your question was he, I said to him and to both of them, I said, how did you cope with all the atrocities and the trauma that you experienced? You came to a new country. You only had your shirt on your back. How did you deal with it? You know, so many of your family died and perished. And he said to me, when I came to this country, I kept on having dreams about my mother. Hmm. She kept on coming to me and she kept on coming to me. And he said, I couldn't function. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't work. I, I was just so bereft and, you know, so grief stricken. So I said, what did you do? So he said, well, I went to the rabbi and I asked what I should do because I was really having a hard time. And the rabbi said to me, just forget about it. Don't think about it, get it out of your mind. You know, it happened in the past, leave it alone. And he said, so that's what I did. And when he told me that story, I had tears streaming down my eyes. Yeah, The thought of repressing that trauma for all these years, like it just destroyed me to hear that coming from my grandfather. And it was so interesting because he looked at me. He was so puzzled. He goes, Why are you crying? He was so confused. He didn't understand why I would have a <laughs> reaction to what he yeah. was saying, which is fascinating. Anyway, so going back to, you know, it, it's amazing, you know, in terms of coping, right? So he repressed everything. You know, my other grandparents, again, came from a very different uh, neighborhood. Socioeconomic status was different than my other grandparents not that they were unscathed because they experienced a a substantial trauma and a lot of murders and all of that as well, but um, their coping was different and they were a little bit more stoic about it, but it came out in their behavior. So like, you know, my grandparents never said, I love you growing up. They never showed physical affection. You know, there was a lot of things that trickled out that, you know, you could see kind of throughout the years.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting, this whole concept of uh, intergenerational trauma. And you can see that the way that the earlier generations are, are coping then affect the children and the grandchildren in ways that are almost imperceptible and it's hard to draw that line from one to the other. This project, this nonprofit sounds really, really interesting because it gives you some insight about why they were the way they were and the impact that it had on, on you and your family. Um, so that's really fascinating, Michelle. Thank you so much for sharing about that aspect of your personal life
1: that's what drove me to do what i'm doing i have to say that because i grew up hearing stories of trauma and i was experiencing to some you know some extent trauma myself and i'm an empath by nature and i feel on a really really deep deep level so if somebody's experiencing pain i experience it as if it's my own mm-hmm. you know, on, that, on that deep of level so i was naturally drawn towards you know being a helper and helping others and and just being you know kind of emotionally sensitive Um, And and I always wanted, I always felt such deep compassion for my grandparents. Unfortunately, they all died, but I dedicated my book to my two grandmothers and some other formative women who were, you know, important in my life. But I really feel such deep compassion for their trauma. Till this day, it really moves me when I hear stories about, you know, people's obviously trauma.
0: Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit, Michelle, about your book, Ace Your Life, Unleash Your Best Self and Live the Life You Want. So, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier, like there is so much we could delve into into this book. And I when I was reviewing it and I really enjoyed reading it, I wasn't sure what would be the best way to dial in to have an hour long conversation with you about the book. And so I thought, you know, let's just get back. Let's get down to the basics. Let's talk about acceptance, compassion, and empowerment. Talk a bit about what you mean by those topics. And then all of the other things in the book, I'd really highly recommend people check it out. But just for today, since we have limited time, we'll focus on acceptance, compassion, empowerment. And I'm hoping you can tell us more about what these mean and how you utilize them in your therapeutic work
1: you know, the way that I structured the book, and I think it's important to talk about that, because it's really kind of the cornerstone of my work. And also, you know, when I was writing the book, <laughs> some of the feedback that I got, which was interesting was, no, 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 you need to write on, a, you need to write on a topic, you need to talk about who you're helping. Are you helping people with anxiety? Are you helping people like, who is this going to help? And I said, no, this is more like an overview. This is how you live your life. It's kind of like, you know, Bible, so to speak, right? It's like every day, if you integrate these skills, it's really going to be the kind of life that you want to be living, whatever that may be for you, and everybody's different. So the way that I saw that, and, you know, um, I've been a blogger for many, many, many years on a lot of different platforms. And it was a, I literally have a culmination of about 800 pages of articles that I've written. And I noticed as I was like, you know, kind of sifting through all the articles, the same kind of pillars kept on coming up. And I'm like, this is it. So what I started out with was talking about our thinking. Cause it's really important to understand where, you know, about our thinking, you know, our cognition, uh, the second chapter is on our core values, like you stated. And then the, the three parts, which is acceptance, compassion, empowerment. The first part of it talks about the barriers. The second part talks about how to integrate. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because we need to understand what keeps us from integrating that information and there are very specific things both that are evidence-based right that we know from you know kind of research which i did include a lot in my book because i think it's important to know about you know the current research and also how we are going to integrate it so you know when we talk about acceptance it sounds very daunting right mm-hmm. Acceptance, like oh i have to accept myself what does that even mean right And people do have a visceral kind of sometimes negative reaction to that word, because if I accept myself, does that mean that I have to accept mediocrity? You know, does that mean that I'm not going to be motivated to strive? You know, does that mean that I have to relent to what is, you know, and also what if I don't like something about myself? You know, why do I have to accept that about myself? How is that going to be helpful and useful to me? So... Another word to use is acknowledgement. It's not denying or pushing away from, right, or resisting or kind of struggling with. It's being with what is and acknowledging it that it's here. And that is such a critical skill. What we tend to do is we have a lot of shoulds, ought to, musts, right? We have these ideas and these expectations and attachments to things that don't allow us to accept and I'm not talking about accepting ourselves, but also accepting circumstances. Quite often, there are circumstances that we're in that we just have no control over. And I'll give you an example. I'm, I was working yesterday with a college age you know, male who I saw three years ago. He circled back to me, which was, I love when that happens. And you see them three years later. And he said to me, I have to be honest with you. I really wasn't ready to work three years ago. <laughs> we just scratched the surface, but I, I remember things he told me and I remember it was so helpful. And that's why I circled back to you. Cause now I'm ready to work, which was like, yay. <laughs> you know, you know, what happened to him, unfortunately is he played football. That was his identity is playing football. His lung collapsed twice in the midst of his career oh, and wow. he, he can't play anymore. I mean, he's done on the field. And you could imagine for somebody who identifies as being a football player, when the doctor tells them you can't play anymore, how that wreaks havoc and how impactful that is for this particular individual. And it is really it is. And he's he's been coping by, you know, what you expect, you know, smoking a lot of weed and drinking and partying and other things, you know, which really wasn't allowing him to live his best life and living the life he wants. And, you know, he really wants to kind of be accepting and understanding of this is kind of the predicament, but that doesn't have to stop me, right? And it's the difference between somebody, people get into really horrible accidents and other things, right? Why is it that one person thrives and strives, right? And another person falters and will go towards like substance abuse or use or whatever the case is, right? It has a lot to do with our coping Mm -hmm. and accepting that we don't have control of our lives. And in the midst of what we are experiencing, there are elements we can control. So, there's a lot of things around that. The other thing is taking a real non judgmental stance. I explain it in the book as the thinking mind and the observing mind. And we're constantly, constantly, constantly in our thinking mind we're judging, we're evaluating, we're assessing. And a lot of that comes with, again, this resistance to accepting things for the way they are. We also label good, bad, right, wrong. We quantify things as opposed to just seeing them as they are, you know, a good example is like, you could be lying on the beach in the most incredible place in the world, like scenic and beautiful and sun is shining. You could be laying there and you could just be observing and you could say, wow, the sun is shining and the sea is blue and there are people walking around the beach and I love the laughter of children and happiness and joyfulness that I'm hearing, right? Or you could be, oh, it's really sunny and I feel so hot and irritating and oh gosh, those kids are laughing. How annoying is that? It's really, it's annoying me and really putting judgment on those thoughts. And we do that all the time.
0: So when you're talking about the idea of radical self-acceptance that I imagine is paying attention to the judgments that you're making of yourself in whatever situation you are, what you're like, and that tends to not go well in terms of how a person is experiencing their life. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And we do it all the time. I have a mirror in my office. And again, when I have people here, sometimes I'll do these experiential exercises and I'll say, what do you see?" And then they'll think, no, no, no no thinking. Like, what do you see? Inevitably will be an adjective around something. So like my nose is big or uh, my eyes are too spread apart or my hair looks frizzy today or whatever the case is, right? And I'm like, okay, that's different than saying like my hair looks frizzy today and I look ugly as opposed to my hair's frizzy without any adjective.
0: Right. So judgment bleeds into so much of the, of the evaluations that people are doing of themselves when they're just sort of not conscious of it, but doing that constantly, it's just the buzz of the mind.
1: Yes. And it's willing. it's the willingness also to be in the present moment, no matter what shows up. Yeah. Painful or uncomfortable. And again, it's nobody's fault. I have to say this and it's the way our mind is wired and the way we're socialized we're really socialized to believe that negative or uncomfortable emotions are bad and that we need to get rid of them. And we're constantly in this perpetual state of resisting our kind of uncomfortable or negative emotions. And you know, what, what we do know, which is so important is I call uncomfortable and negative emotions, energy, like anger. And I could relate really well to anger. Some people like get a phobic response to anger and they're very, you know, conflict avoidant me, anger, I love anger.
2: Like,
1: <laughs> I'm so comfortable with anger. That's what uh-huh. That's what actually helped me cope growing up, honestly, because it makes me feel in control. It makes yeah. me feel strong. It makes me feel, you know, etc. That I have to like really watch and, and temper back because I could definitely go in that direction, which could then spill into my behavior. Sometimes anything that's painful, but what is anger? What's the purpose? Anger for me really, that's a secondary feeling. When I think about my anger, I take a step back and I ask myself a very pointed question, which I've been really helping my patients to kind of think about the underlying feeling. What is worrying me right now? What am I fearful of? And wow, like talk about transformative.
0: Yeah, sure. And that obviously so many people experience anger and that's the safe emotion for them to feel and we've done a number of podcast episodes focusing in on men and in particular as you know for men anger is often about the only emotion that they feel comfortable experiencing and expressing and it's underlying these these deeper more uncomfortable vulnerable feelings that they're actually having
1: and think about how it looks in women
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Just kidding, right. So people and I know this, like sometimes if I'm in that space, I have to really, really make an effort to soften up, because it could come across as like a wildfire, right? Or it could come across as intimidating or whatever the case is, you know, right.
0: And in, in many ways, it's less acceptable in women socially yes. to express the anger. Sure.
1: Yeah. The other thing, too, is it really gets us connected to what's important to us. I can't say that enough. And that's where our core values kind of kick in. Every feeling we have gets us closer to understanding ourselves better and to understand what's important to us. They all have important utility. So when we're kind of, we have this idea, oh, I could cut off my negative or uncomfortable emotions. But what we don't realize is we cannot cut off parts of ourselves. We cannot compartmentalize. So when we're cutting off the negative, we're cutting off the positive as well.
0: And any emotion is just valuable feedback to a person about what's really going on. Right. So Michelle, let's talk a bit about you label several ways to realize self-acceptance. I wonder if we could just go through some of these so you can give us some ideas about how a person might go about doing that in their life.
1: Yes. I talk about 12 steps towards self-acceptance and how to embody self-acceptance. And in those 12 step- steps, obviously, I also explain what each one is. I'm not going to do that here because we'll be here all day, but I will very briefly kind of go through them. But we really want to recognize our mind's protective and nurturing nature, which again, we don't really realize that because we're so adverse to, you know, accepting the emotions like we talked about. Also identifying when our mind is avoiding, denying and cutting off our feelings. Notice the propensity to keep returning to the negative. So we have a negative negativity bias in our brains. And we tend to focus or hyper-focus on the negative. An interesting little fact is if you think about it and I ask people, you know, try to think of, you know, the most traumatic or negative or painful memory you could think about and try to feel it on a real visceral level. And I'll have people tap into it and they can have access to it. And then I'll say, try that with a positive or joyful or positive emotion and i say try to feel it on a real visceral level guess what happens you can't
0: why do you think there's a negative bias that people have is that socialized or is there some kind of a physiological hardwiring for that
1: both if you think about it because the propensity is to do that it's a double whammy our mind is our executive protector when we have traumatic memories that come up the purpose of our mind holding on to those memories is a to protect us from danger and b so that we avoid discomfort. And we're constantly, constantly in every single day, every facet of our life, we are doing that. Our brain is doing that. So our brain remembers the negative, focuses on the negative, you know, could even in some respects, right, could perseverate over the negative to help us to remember in the future that we want to avoid, so to speak. And avoiding obviously is not always productive. Those situations or feelings, or behaviors so that we don't have to either be in danger or be uncomfortable.
0: The brain wants to keep us from getting eaten by the saber-toothed tiger before it wants to allow us to enjoy singing and playing in the stream type of thing.
1: Yes. Yes. That is called a reptilian brain.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Reptilian brain. Got it.
1: We're wired as if we're in the stone ages, like, you know, kind of uh, catching and, you know, like predators, right? Like catching our food and and, uh, cooking it and eating it.
0: Well, let's hear some of these others.
1: Step five is uh, setting an intention of being more open and curious about yourself, others and the world around you. And curiosity, I always say that is like an incredible word to live by. If you walked and talked every single day with curiosity, how would you observe? How would you communicate? How would you behave? Your life would be completely different fascinating step six be present with all the thoughts and feelings that show up again no contingency no matter what okay step seven identify the elements of change be in the what is rather than the what if which is what we do right so if we're in kind of a depressed state we live in the past if we're in regret if we if we're in an anxious state we tend to live in the future and what if right the best place and the most productive place is to be in the present moment Step eight, notice and celebrate you. That's a whole discussion in and of itself, which I could talk hours and hours about
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because we are never, ever taught. And that's part of the compassion. We're never taught to notice and celebrate ourselves. We're never taught how to do it. We're never taught why we should be doing it. And it is the cornerstone of our confidence, which leads into and spills into all of the things that I'm talking about today.
0: Well, you see this a lot with patients in therapy, Michelle, and I'm I'm wondering if this is kind of an example of what you're talking about. Like people are very focused on what they didn't do right, what they didn't do well. And obviously there's people have perfectionistic ideas a lot of the time, but when they do do things well, they just sort of look at it as like, that's sort of expected. That's what was supposed to happen. So I'm not going to get all excited about that.
1: So you're talking about expectations, attachments, and our negativity bias, all operating at the same time. Yeah, you see how much we have to work up against? I mean, it is incredible.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) I
1: I have chapters for each one, for example, like full chapters discussing our barriers. There are so many of them. It's uncanny. If you search up love songs, you'll find songs representing our love towards others. What about love songs directed towards loving ourselves? Oh, no, we don't. Mm-hmm. Do Very few. And I really yeah. mean that. Really, really few. Why is that? Why?
0: <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> I, I guess it, it, it comes in line with this whole idea about uh, self-acceptance, right? We don't focus on that part.
1: No, but we're not conditioned to understand its importance. We're yeah. really not. And I have to tell you, i am a lot more present and in tune like with my patients and i i really strive every day to become more and more and more kind of connected you know it's gotten to a point where i really express my raw deep emotions towards my clients you know i had one person i've been seeing her i think since eighth grade something like that she's in her third year of college okay this is a kid and I'm not, I don't even call her a kid. She's a young adult, you know, mm-hmm. cause I, you know, I, I know her for so long when she came to see me and I'm not exaggerating, she had literally no friends. She had like a, a sprinkle of friends, very, very like on the surface was not deep, you know, in her relationships really suffered, you know, with depression, anxiety, socially isolated. I mean, she was in a really, really pretty depressed state today. Wow. I mean, she's in a, a major university. She's also very intelligent, you know, comes again, a lot of family issues, you know, kind of challenges, which we've worked through, and she sets boundaries, and she's just kind of cultivated this incredible life for herself. So what happens? She got into kind of a argument, conflict with her roommate. Well, what did, what did it tap into for, for her? She got very activated, and it snowballed. She started isolating herself from her boyfriend. Again, boyfriend. Like if you met this person, <laughs> you couldn't even imagine that she had yeah. the conversations and the depth at which she communicates with this boyfriend blows me away. I mean, I can't yeah. even tell you. Yeah. So she was telling me, right? And she it snowballed. She she texted me and she was like, I'm really not doing well. Like I'm having a little bit of those feelings that I had and it's scaring me. And I said, you know what? Let's not wait till next week to meet because now I see her, you know, period. I don't see her as often as I used to, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? Why don't we meet this week? I'll call Squeezy in, you know, and she's like, thank you. Thank you. And we were talking and it was so obvious that she was triggered and it activated literally the thoughts and feelings of how she felt when she was in eighth grade. Mm hmm. And she was spiraling. She really was. She was spiraling because all of those negative beliefs about herself were resurfacing. And all of a sudden it was like, my boyfriend doesn't care about me. My friend, I can't like keep friendships. It was all of those negative thoughts, you know, and it just takes that little tiny like trigger that kind of gets her to that spot. My point was going back to like how at the end of our conversation, I said to her, I said, can we take a moment here? Can we just stop? She's like, what? I said, wow, I feel so incredibly honored to be talking about this with you on such a deep level. I am so moved by you. Tears welled up in my eyes. And I said to her, could you just take a minute and like, look at yourself? Could you just think about where you've come over the years that you are, you always were An incredibly worthy valued person and now you believe it yeah now you're acting on behalf of it and look where you are take a minute
2: yeah
1: and her face turned red you know and she you could see she got a little uncomfortable i go how does it feel to hear this from me right and she said you know, it it feels a little weird and it feels uncomfortable, but like I love it, and I'm and I, I feel it feels so good when you say that to me, and I feel so connected to you. And I said right back at you.
0: What I really like about that story is, obviously, she's made tremendous personal growth and progress over the last decade or so since you first met her, and even though those original feelings, those childhood feelings, are surfacing in a particular incident, she didn't realize until you kind of reminded her like how much growth she's actually made to be able to come to you and even have this conversation at such an intelligent and mature level about what she's actually feeling and going through. And that in and of itself just shows so much progress that she's made.
1: So much. And she said to me, she goes, I'm not that girl. She said to me, (laughs) she's like, those are old feelings. I go, yep. I go, yeah. sometimes, you know, sometimes we get a little bit of a trigger, right? And we forget, like, right? We need a little reminder. We need a little kind of helpful reminder. And it, it's so wonderful, you know? So step nine, forgive yourself for misdreams, past mistakes, and failures, which I'll just mention this person again, just because we're talking about her. Could you imagine, like, through her middle school ages, right? And then, like, some of, some, some of high school, she has deep regrets. And even... Some stuff showed up like throughout high school, but again, this is where she was at. Right. And and having that self-forgiveness and appreciating and having gratitude for where she's evolved to and how all these discoveries through our evolution gets us to where we are. And we can't be in that place back then because that's not where we're at. And we're only at the place that we're at now because of our experiences from the past.
0: Yeah. You know where I see that a lot, Michelle? I mean, I think that pops up all the time with people. But if you think about people who had maybe like a a substance abuse issue, an alcohol issue, or some other kind of destructive behavior, and maybe they feel like they lost a few years of time or really blew it during that period of time because of these things. And then they've gotten a lot better. They've worked on their issues. They're doing better. But they're looking back and they're saying. I screwed up so badly at that time. I'm never going to get those years back at that time. And I just have these, you know, it's like a self-punishing for having gone through that. But exactly like what what you just said, they they were going through that at the time because they were suffering and dealing with whatever kind of emotional turmoil they had. And they did hard work to get themselves out of it. So going back and beating up on oneself for having had that experience is just sort of not that fair to oneself, is it?
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, I work with, people who are in their Mm seventies you know, and a lot of older adults who have a lot of regrets. Right. And I I, just, just yesterday, I was talking to somebody in her seventies. She happens to be a therapist actually. And I said to her, okay, you know, you are where you're at, but like, uh, I don't know, we hope you have another 25 years. Like, you know, are, are you ready to give up now? Is that it? I mean, I'm just asking you, like, is that where you're at? And she laughed, you know, she's like, hell no. I'm like, good. (laughs)
0: Well, right, you have the time you have left to make the best of the time you have and and not focus on the regrets of the mistakes you may have made that happened not because you're a terrible, awful person, but because the factors of events and your internal psychodynamics were occurring at that time. So I think that's just such an important point.
1: Yeah. So step 10, cultivate a nurturing life and relationships. Step 11, speak and behave on behalf of your best self. The longest relationship you'll have is with yourself. Yeah. And it's one you should take most seriously. I say that often. It's the longest relationship that you'll ever, ever have. Like, think about that. Well, and you can't really
0: really end that relationship, can you? No,
1: No, it ends with you. Right, right. (laughs) And then the last one is to commit to practicing and not giving up no matter what, right? I talk about the no matter what, right? You know, and then commit to constantly questioning yourself as to whether you're being you're led toward your values or away from them. And by the actions you're taking, are you increasing or taking away from your confidence?
0: Good. So those were the 12 points about how to realize self-acceptance. Let's talk about compassion a little, you, you discuss with a C is self-compassion. What exactly is self-compassion and how does that differ from self-acceptance?
1: Self-acceptance is the acknowledgement. Like I said, you know, just kind of noticing Uh, a self-compassion is it's an action that you're taking. And like I said, we really never learn why it's important to be self-compassion and how to really integrate that. It's so hard to explain. Again, we could be here all day. Um, yeah, I know. You know explaining what self compassion is. And like I said, I give a ton, ton, ton of experiential exercises on how to cultivate that self compassion. I think the point that I always make, particularly when somebody's experiencing distressing thoughts or feelings, when somebody's um, experiencing a difficult situation or whatever the case is. So what's the difference between somebody who ends up being extremely resilient, and there's a lot of resilient research and evidence, that the difference between somebody who thrives and the those who don't is somebody in their life taking interest in them. It could be a coach, a caretaker, it could be a babysitter, it could be anybody. It's one person that showed interest in the person hmm. and made feel valuable and valued in some way.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is so interesting, right?
0: Well, yeah, it also shows how important it is for a child to have at least one person who cares about them. Right.
1: Yes. Yes. In the dedication of my book, like I consider myself incredibly resilient and resourceful and it was amazing. I was thinking through my, like through the evolution of my life and I realized one of the resources that I always, always made sure to have was an older woman, that showed interest in me and nurtured me in some way. And I had that from when I was really young, whether it was a teacher, a mentor, my grandmothers, I know that that always, always helped me to really kind of connect to my confidence in myself.
0: Yeah, why do you think that was important? You mentioned it being a female. Was there a reason why in particular, female was important to you?
1: Yes, for a couple of reasons like I shared, my parents both, you know, were survivors, I'm going to say, of intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And it impacted both of them in very, very integral ways. Um, my mother and father both had difficulty kind of connecting emotionally. You know, I kind of consider myself, and I'm disclosing this, uh, to be a person who experienced emotional neglect, you know, growing up. Again, my parents did the best they could with the you know resources and knowledge they had at the time i mean looking back and understanding and especially what i was going through because of their trauma and their own challenges i really didn't have you know anyone to talk to i i felt very lonely as a child you know and i i remember times where i would like sit and cry and hug my teddy bear. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I do, I have memories of just feeling extremely alone. I mean, one good thing is I always was very social and I had a lot of friends and I always had a boyfriend too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> kind of growing up, I was very resourceful, resourceful in that way. And I had very intimate relationships, very deep relationships. But I remember always feeling different. I remember feeling pseudo mature because mm-hmm. I was definitely a parentified child. And I always remember having great insights and intuitiveness. Different from my peers, and I knew that. So I always related to older people and older women, and I was pseudo mature. I was, I was. So when it came to my peers, I always felt like that they didn't quite understand the world in the way that I did. You know, so that that was definitely a piece of it for me.
0: Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. That you were sort of forced to take care of yourself emotionally, and you said play a parentified role. So you probably related. To older people, better on an emotional and psychological level.
1: Yeah. I think as a female, I think we look towards mothers, towards that bond and that attachment. And again, the way we're socialized. Okay. So when we watch movies and TV, and again, I'm, you know, a little older. So it's not like, you know, going on TikTok and whatever else as it was when I was younger. What did I see? What did I observe? I observed like all my friends had this gushy, you know, like, Connected, like they went shopping and got their nails done and then I wasn't doing any of that stuff. You know what I mean? So, like to me, I had this craving towards like having this like emotional and physical and you know attachment towards my mom that I didn't have. And I think I craved that from women, particularly, you know. I don't think I craved it as much from my father. Interestingly enough, my father was very physically affectionate. So I think even though I didn't get the emotional part from him. I think that I appreciated that physical connection Sure. where I didn't really get either one from my mother. So it's interesting like how, you know, when you think about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I know there's all sorts of directions we could go with the self-compassion stuff, but I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about five ways of practicing self-compassion. You have this, this is an acronym, WIROC, Where you talk about it. And when I read that, I was like, I wonder if she's trying to get at something because that sounds like the name of like a medieval gargoyle or something. So kind of interesting. (laughs) Tell us what the um, W-E-R-O-C stands for there in self-compassion.
1: So it's supposed to be, we rock, you know? We I mean,
0: rock, oh,
1: okay. Yes.
0: Okay. I missed that.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's we rock. Got right? it, so okay, I'm like, yeah. okay. I'm a
0: little I'm a little dense, Michelle, sorry. No, that, no, that, no, ma- no. that makes a lot more sense, okay.
1: So yes, rock is like, yes, we rock, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. I gotcha.
1: Yes, it's my little, you know, the side of me coming out. It, it was really supposed to be empowering, of course. Everything that I try to write is supposed to be coming from an empowering place.
0: Right, so, I knew I, I I knew I was missing something there.
1: <laughs> what, isn't it good that I have that you have me on so I could clarify? It is. <laughs> um, so five steps to practicing self compassion, and there are so many exercises, you know, to fortify in this uh, self compassion. And I have to tell you, it is like I like I explained before. When I express a sentiment to somebody, when I ask somebody to express a sentiment to themselves. People turn colors, and I'm not even exaggerating. It is so viscerally uncomfortable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Be compassionate towards ourselves. It's incredible. And I always bring it to people's attention. Like, look how uncomfortable this is for you. Yeah. And I also acknowledge and validate their feelings. I go, by the way, it's not just you, because I feel the same way. I did a TED Talk, which is circumventing emotional avoidance. And I talked about looking in the mirror. I do that sometimes like when I'm feeling, you know, really distressed and I really want a quick like experiential exercise to really tap into my compassion. I look in the mirror. It is a great exercise. So if you look in the mirror, cause when we look in the mirror, we don't look in the mirror, right? We just kind of, Oh, how does my clothing fit? Whatever. Yeah. But if you really look into your eyes, if you gaze into your eyes, you see a person with thoughts, feelings, you see the parts of yourself and it automatically taps you into your humanity in such a beautiful way. And when I do that, when I have that moment and I'll look in my these in my eyes, like my empath and my compassion, empathy, like drips out. Like I feel it in my heart, you know? And I'm like, yes, you're suffering right now. This is really hard for you. This is a moment where you're feeling really distressed and anybody in the circumstance would feel distressed, who could believe you? This is distressing, you know? And I also want to say in terms of the compassion, it's not going to come easily. You got to practice it based on our wiring, how we're socialized and on and on and on. Okay. And I talk about the barriers, everything works against us to help us to cultivate this. Okay. So it takes consistent practice and what we practice grows stronger. So I cannot say emphasize that enough, really, really important. So W, which is with not against your self-critic, okay? It's to notice it, again, work with it, right? But let it become your ally. Oh gosh, thank you so much for reminding me how important my value of friendship is and scaring the daylights out of me and making me think that my friend is rejecting me and hates me and wants nothing to do with me because you want to make sure that I'm not rejected. I so appreciate and honor this protective side of you. That's trying to keep me from being rejected.
0: So once again, it's sort of paying attention. It's really paying attention and then using that to focus on the self-compassion.
1: Correct. E engage your friend voice. If we could use our friends or somebody we love as an object as or an example, it would also ease us up. I can't even tell you when people beat themselves up. I say, Would you say the same sentiments to your friends? Yeah. And if you would, how would they react to you? Right. And they start laughing. You know, they laugh to me. They're like, oh my goodness, I would never say that to anybody. I said, Why not? Because I wouldn't have any friends. I said, Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and that's that that's such a powerful therapeutic technique, having people talk to of an imaginary person there, the way that they would be talking to themselves about a a particular situation. And you're right, almost never would somebody say the same thing to that person that they say to themselves.
1: I I say to them, why wouldn't you say that to somebody? And they said, because that's kind of mean, that's rude. I said, oh, so it's okay to be mean and rude to yourself. Is that what you're telling me? And they're like, oh, whoops, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, The next is R for redirect. So you really want to redirect your inner critic, you know, and focus on specific situations and behaviors rather than broad labels or personal attributes. Okay. And, you know, so instead of labeling you as who you are, you're going to label the behavior. I'm bad means I'm bad. There's nothing you could do for me or about me or with me because I'm bad. You know what? I didn't behave in the best way. That was like a faux pas. Like I really should have been more mindful when I behaved that way. And that's not who I am as a person, but I I need to change my behavior.
0: Distinguishing between a a mistake or something that one does because of a lack of awareness or whatever from their true inner self.
1: Correct. You know, another good example of that is people always say this to me. I'm having the most awful day. It's the most horrible day. I hate it. It's going to be awful for the rest of the day. And I say to them, whoa, let's slow down. It's a horrible moment in a beautiful (laughs) day. And they're like, oh, that's right. Yeah, it's only a moment. But like the day is 24 hours. You could have a moment. And that doesn't mean the rest of the hours in the day are going to be as painful. (laughs)
0: Right. Maybe they spilled the coffee on themselves at breakfast time, but their lunch was absolutely fabulous, right?
1: Exactly. The O is observe and acknowledge. Again, it's about the observing and acknowledging. And name it and acknowledge it rather than trying to suppress it, because we never want to do that. And the last one is comfort. So identify the emotions and where it is in your body. How are you feeling them? There could be tightness in your chest, heaviness in your shoulders. You know, notice it. Make concerted efforts, you know, to reserve the self-judgment and self-criticism. And also ask yourself continually what you need to feel validated and supported during moments of pain or challenge, and follow through on giving yourself the attention, the words of encouragement, touch, or whatever else you may need. So I teach people touch, you know, there's something I do a lot of trauma work, which I explained, and I do something called EMDR. But you know, there's something called the butterfly. So for example, if you cross your hands, like, again, it's your right hand to your left shoulder, left hand to right shoulder, and you tap That mimics bilateral stimulation, which is very, very relaxing. And it actually recalibrates us and it helps ease the nervous system. There's a physiological shift that happens when we do that. But you could also match a mantra or self affirming kind of words with it. So I know for myself, like for an example, when I feel very out of control or distressed, for whatever reason, the thing that comes up is, The feeling and the thought that comes up is for some people, it's I'm not enough. I can't do this. For me is I'm not okay. It's like this frenetic feeling of like things just being too, you know, spinning out of control. So when I do my butterfly, I say to myself, I am okay. I am okay. And then I grab my feet really strongly planted on the ground and realize I am safe in this moment, right? I am here in the present moment. And then I say to myself, I am okay, right? I am worthy. I am lovable.
0: Yeah, so there's a there's a physical self-soothing aspect to it along with a cognitive part that you're right. associating with it. Those are great ideas. Um, I'll have to incorporate some of that into my practice, Michelle. I really like that yeah. because I, I don't think I have the greatest toolkit for those kinds of things. It's the deep breathing and yeah. the things we all learn, but it sounds yeah. like you have some other really good ideas for that. So I like those.
1: Well, I teach a 15 week semester course at NYU on mindfulness. It's incorporating mindfulness into our practice. So, could you imagine like 15 weeks of mindfulness? So, it's <laughs> a lot. There's a lot you could do with mindfulness. The one other thing that I wanted to say, just trailing back to what I said before, remember I said that all we need is the validation and acknowledgement? Yes. When we're in distress, that's all we need. And who says that it has to come from somewhere, someone else or from somewhere else? When I take the moment and I say to myself, I am experiencing a moment of distress. I feel it in my chest. I feel my chest tightening up. When I feel sad because I'm worried about my child, it makes me feel so worried. It makes me feel so fearful. And in these moments of distress, I know I'm trying my best and I will always try my best as a mom because parenting is important. It's one of my primary values.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? And I love that about myself and I care about myself and I always strive to be my best.
0: Michelle, let's move on to empowerment, the E part of ACE and talking a little bit about What is self-empowerment and what do empowered people look like?
1: Action, action, action. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's all about action. The issue that I find in my practice, just working with people throughout the years is it's a lot easier to learn habits and to cultivate behavior than it is to maintain and sustain it over time. So I do a lot of work around health and wellness, you know, and often I'll ask my audience, How many have lost weight or have, you know, decided to do some kind of action or behavior that led to their wellness and all the hands go up. And then I say, how many of you have maintained or sustained it over time? Hands go down. It's inevitable. You know, we could talk about substance use and abuse. We could talk about, you know, overeating. There's tons and tons of behaviors that we experience. Now, keep in mind It all goes back to, right, if we're doing behaviors that we're shameful of, and we feel regretful of, and it is negatively impacting our confidence, how open are we going to be to be self-accepting and self-compassionate? Right. It all blends together. There's a chart that I have at at the top of my book, which explains the model. And what you see is the arrows all lead into each other. You got to have acceptance, compassion, and empowerment. And they all lend to practicing self-worth, self-efficacy, self-belief, self-love. And throughout all of that, you want to also practice curiosity and flexibility. So hand in hand. So if we're not doing behaviors that we're proud of, that's building on our confidence, it's going to compromise all the things that I'm talking about, the cornerstones of how we're living our best life. They all go hand in hand. So I thought, and I believe that you really also need to know and have knowledge about maintaining and sustaining behavior. And that those last two chapters is all about action, taking action. You know, there's a quote that I quoted um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you can fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's a great quote.
1: I use a lot of metaphors also in imagery because I love metaphors. I feel like people remember them, you know, but the metaphor that I often use is about a mountain. If you're climbing up a mountain, you're hiking, right? Let's say you get tired. You're carrying a lot of gear. It's hot. You know, you're kind of parched. You need, you're dehydrated. You need a little bit of a drink. What do you do? You stop. You take a couple minutes, right? Take a drink. You recalibrate and you move uphill, right? You go towards the summit. You don't start going downhill just because you have to take a rest right? or else you'll never get to the summit. But that's what we do in our behavior constantly.
0: I love the mountain example because I do a lot of hiking and yeah. it's very easy when you're going up a steep section to just say, oh boy, it would be it sure be nice to just start walking downhill. Yeah. But then you're right. You take, you, you stop and you say, okay, I'll take a little breath and take a rest. And then one foot after another, just keep, keep moving. So
1: completely. Yeah. Uh, There's also a lot of limiting self-beliefs that get in our way of, you know, successfully kind of carrying out behaviors. And I make a whole list of them. There are so many of them. And I'll just mention like two or three, but I mean, I think I came up with like 40, you know, but like, uh, I'm powerless. It's too hard. You know, life is hard for me. I have bad luck. Approval of me is critical. Again, there's a ton. I could sit here, all these kind of negative beliefs and rationalizations that we make towards our behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And actually I recorded a, a, a podcast episode uh, several weeks ago that I did on core rational beliefs, which really talks about the yes. kinds of core rational beliefs we internalize as a child. And that kind of permeates through all of our thinking and behavior until we can kind of recognize that that's what's affecting us. So yeah. you come up with a really nice list of those in your, in your book. Yeah.
1: yeah. And there's also a list of behaviors that keep you from being your best self which is another part of empowerment, overworking, avoiding being alone, denying, ignoring, distracting, again, a list from here to whatever, right?
0: So Michelle, let's just talk briefly about some examples of what empowered people look like.
1: Yes. So I love this list. And I have to tell you, even before the book came out, I was sharing this with patients of mine. They kept on saying to me, where could we get this? Like, (laughs) I need this on my refrigerator. (laughs) Yeah. I include 18 ways to work through habits that foster the empowerment process. I'm not going to go through all those, but those are really critical. So there's one piece of that that I think is really critical, but it's really in terms of how people live who are empowered. So one is accepting and facing adversity, no matter how challenging it is. It's really armor, right? Saying to yourself, part of life is trade-offs. And in order for me to succeed and in order for me to move forward, I need to actually lean into challenging myself. I need to be work hard. Again, athletes, if they're professional, do they say, Oh, I got it. I don't need to go to practice. I'm good. No, they still have to work their butts off in four hour practices a day, basketball, football, whatever it is, in order to maintain whatever talent they have.
0: It's so easy to just sort of when an adversity comes up to put one's head in the sand and just avoid because that's, More comfortable and easier, but that you're saying an empowered person doesn't avoid, they don't put their head in the sand.
1: Correct. Have a mission and purpose led by your values. Another really important piece, find meaning and opportunity for growth in challenging times. When I have challenging people enter my life, I go, ooh, that's a trigger. What a treasure. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm here's a treasure. Oh, cool. Let me, let me see what lesson this is going to bring. And I do when I have adversity and challenges, I always think about the lesson that I'm learning. That's coming out of that experience. Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm dismissing the distress. So I really want to make that clear, but I am noticing both, which is the piece That's really important. Have a social support network and support others really important. Can't underestimate there's a lot of studies done on the power of of social support, improving health outcomes, longevity, and I could go on and on can self-regulate and control their impulses. Again, that takes practice to be in the discomfort. People always comment to me because I happen to be super healthy. I work out six days a week. I really eat clean and I'm very consistent, you know? Um, And they're like, how is it that you're so, you know, I don't understand. Like you're so motivated and you know, etc. And I say, um I don't know. I'm not any more motivated than you are. You know, I like I don't have a vein. I don't have any different blood or veins going through my body than you do, you know? It's practice. And it's okay that like if I want something, right? Let's say I want to eat something. Like I could say to myself, it's okay for me to be uncomfortable. And at times I could say to myself, it's also okay to eat it because it's something that I think that I want.
0: I think also that comes up quite a bit with people who experience anxiety because oftentimes people just want to do something, yes. anything they can to relieve the anxiety, whether it's it's yes. run away or yes. it's to respond with a knee jerk response to something yes. before taking a step back and just sort of like whew, calm down, sort of get yes. get. Get a handle on what's actually going on here, so that and that's hard. That's very hard for people.
1: Uh, I always hear, "I want to feel better." That's the first thing people walk into, you know, or into my practice. I want to feel better. I go, "Oh, good luck, good luck on that." But I, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't do lobotomies here. Uh-huh. Like, we don't do them in my office. They laugh, you know, when I kind of joke around with them about that. Right. Um, able to improvise. Okay, we need to be able to pivot. That's the magic word. It's like literally pivoting, boom, 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 right Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's exercising that flexibility when things don't go our way, which again talks about attachments and expectations which are, are, are heavily I talk about the Buddhist precepts a lot in, in my mindfulness work. but we have to be flexible. We have to learn to bend and to pivot when adversity you know shows itself.
0: It's so easy for people to get stuck, right?:
1: Yes. Very easy. And my whole, by the way, my whole book is about stuckness. Again, when I was pitching the book, they're like, okay, what's the problem? What's the problem? I go, it's stuckness. Uh, Who's going to relate to stuckness? I go, (laughs) everybody on this planet.
0: Right, (laughs) right. I don't
1: understand what you mean. Stuckness comes in all different shapes and forms, you know, from different people are open to deeper, more connected relationships. You can't have a deep connected relationship to yourself. You have to have a deep relationship to yourself. You have to have a deep and connected relationship to others. Those are caveats. And there are skills to learn that. Again, that's another thing that we don't learn, by the way, that I teach people. We don't learn how to be relational. When I teach people even like modes of communication, they're floored. They're like, nobody ever taught me that. Or I didn't hear that from my parents. I'm like, oh, I'm sure you did, you know? And I, I have to tell you, I... I Obviously, work with a lot of people with anxiety, which you know. Do you know people that I work with with anxiety? They have transformed their parenting while working with me. There is mm. so many people that I could I could tell you that I can recall. There is a woman I am working with now. Wow, again, talk about like transformation. This person, she said to me the other day because her daughter is getting bat mitzvah this weekend. You know, there is a lot of stress. You know, you can imagine, right? Every all the planning and everything else. Sure. And we talked about how to talk to her. How to talk to the daughter and she said to me she stopped and she said to me you know michelle she said i have to be honest i never would have even thought to talk to my daughter in the way that i am if i wasn't if i didn't learn how to be compassionate towards myself and communicate in a light relational way yeah and i mean wow You know, so it's skills that helps us across the board, not just with ourselves, but actually relationally with other people too.
0: Sure. And it feels very empowering to be able to know how to speak with your children the way that you want to, and in a way that's going to empower them. So that's got to feel really good for people to to do that. Yeah,
1: And, And for her, she recognizes how she didn't have that while she was growing up. That was something that she didn't have. And the last one is seek out new experiences that enrich your life. There's actually a lot of research about that also, you know, how to seek out those experiences for all of the things that I'm talking about, which I really do want to emphasize all of the things I'm talking about besides based on my own practice and my experiences, it's all based on research. So we know that people who are more flexible and open to again, expansion and seeking out new experiences that specifically, and they call that actually in research, it's called psychologically rich. That's the term that's being used today. But that's somebody who seeks out novel experiences and it experiences beauty and perspective in a lot of different ways, which is absolutely incredible if you think about it.
0: What would that look like for somebody... Let's just say somebody like you, you're you're a mom, you've got a busy life, you have a practice, you probably like a lot of people have very little free time. Yes. Um, right. What is somebody in just sort of traditional American lifestyle? How does that show up in terms of seeking mm-hmm. out new experiences that are meaningful?
1: That's a great question. And it could be anything. It really can be, you know, it could be learning about something. It could be traveling, you know, depending again, it depends on who you are and what means you have and resources, right? It could be even just learning how to be in the present moment and, you know, acculturating yourself to like seeing things differently, like the beauty in the world, right? Appreciating nature, learning to exercise, you know, expanding yourself in that way or doing something like, so for example, um, I do a lot of weight training and, you know, and cardiovascular every once in a while, I'll throw in, you know, like a bar class or yoga or like tai chi or you know whatever the case is and it feels and it, sometimes it feels a little strange but it's great and I I love, right? I'm like, "Ooh, I love the feeling of like expansion and doing something that's like different and yeah. that revives me in some way."
0: So just shaking it up and trying some yeah. new and different things. It yeah. could be as simple as that or it yeah. could be hiking Machu Picchu. I mean, Right. Yes. It, it yes. could go either yes. way on those things. Even
1: even yesterday, I, I we were talking, I was talking to a patient about um, shaking things up because she's very ritualized and everything. And I said to her, one second, right here, right now, I want you to take your watch because she was wearing a watch and I want you to put it on the other arm. And I want you to <laughs> sit, sit like that, for, you know, because we were remote. I want you to sit like that the entire session. Uh-huh. And and just see what it feels like. And she she was like, she was like, oh my goodness, I'm noticing it. It's so annoying, you know. And and I and then I kept on checking up on, oh, how, how's it going with the watch? Oh my God, it's so annoying. Like it's in the back of my mind. I feel it, I feel, I feel it. <laughs> and I said, but here's the beauty. If you kept the watch on your arm for a week, two weeks, whatever, do you think you'd notice it anymore? She's like, no. I said, you wouldn't. I said, that's a habit. Yeah. That's exactly it. If you keep practicing and practicing, it becomes, again, familiar. And it's not as uncomfortable as it is when you first start doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I love it. That's a great way to shake <laughs> things up just by putting the watch on the other hand. Well, Michelle, this has been a really fun and exciting conversation to have with you. I really love this ACE concept. And again, boy, we, we just could talk for hours about all of these concepts, but I thought you did a really good job of summarizing some of the more important, the most important points of, and the meat of your book. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with on this topic?
1: I feel so fortunate to be doing this kind of work. And I see so many incredible, incredible transformations. My goal is, is just to reach people so that they could benefit from it. Honestly, like, that's what I really wish. I just want people to benefit from it.
0: Yeah, well, it really shows your passion for the subject and your love for the work you do really shows in the conversation that we're having. So thank you so much for that. And again, I want to really encourage people to go check out your book. I'm sure that people really enjoy it as much as I did, even as a therapist, I learned so much. So I appreciated the opportunity to read it.
1: Thanks. And just one more little thing. So at the end of each chapter is a guided meditation with a QR code. I included that purposefully because I'm a big proponent of mindfulness. Yeah. Um, I do have a YouTube channel that has guided meditations and I, I release one once a, once a week. And then I also have blogs and I'm a blogger on psychology today. So I do like if some people, you know, have a hard time reading a whole book and I get that, but um, just know also that there's articles that I write um, periodically as well. So you could get kind of little bite-sized tips as well.
0: Absolutely. And I'll leave links for as many of those that I can in the show notes. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you.
1: It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikahealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.